Welcome everybody to Crystal Kylan Friends. Today we're going to be talking to Zach and Gavin of The Vanguard. And, um, you know, they do a lot of live stuff on YouTube. They cover a lot of, uh, you know, left-wing independent media stuff. And so looking forward to having a conversation with them and mm -hmm. talking about their show and maybe talking about some more broad political stuff. Should be fun. Yep, absolutely. Very earnest guys um, and have really sort of, you know, found popularity for their channel, I think, quite quickly, especially given how difficult it is to do that in this day and age. So it should be a good combo. Yeah, totally. Uh, before we get into that, though, um, tell me a little bit about now this is by the time you guys are watching this, this this has been out there for a while, but we're, we're recording this a little early. But tell me what's going on with there was a 10 year old who was raped. And I cover I did cover this on my channel. Yeah. And she was denied an abortion, I believe, in Ohio. Correct. And she went to Indiana to get it? Yeah. So here's what happened okay. is 10-year-old um, little girl, which actually now it's come out, she was probably raped and impregnated when she was nine, mm -hmm. um, is impregnated. She uh, seeks an abortion in Ohio, you know, with her mom. And um, because she was six weeks and three days pregnant, she couldn't get an abortion in Ohio because they have an absolute ban at six weeks with no exceptions. So even if the health of the mother is in danger, too, I believe so. It's yeah, and oh, and Ohio is planning to go even further than that and um, make it so that even from the point of for like a personhood, from the point of fertilization making it completely banned. So they're not even satisfied with how draconian and insane their laws are right now. So right now in Indiana, um, and this will probably also change in the very near future, she was still able to get an abortion. So she has to travel after all of this trauma that she's been subjected to. This poor little girl has to travel to Indiana in order to obtain an abortion. Okay. So this is reported in a local paper in Ohio. It gets picked up, obviously, because this is the first sort of major national horror story post-Roe. Um, and people are saying, rightly, this is the sort of thing that we now have to accept and live with, like this horror that is being uh, perpetrated on this little girl. Joe Biden makes uh, mention of it. I covered on my show as well. And the right, rather than really reckoning with the uh, logical implications of the laws that they are passing in all of these states and with the results of this Supreme Court decision, they go in the direction of saying, we don't think this is true. We don't believe it. Um, this is a single source story. Tucker Carlson goes as far as to say this is completely fake. Um, some of the state level Republican officials who are involved in Indiana in particular start casting doubt on it. They're Jim Jordan, Republican politicians all say, ah, we don't really believe there's all kinds of questions. We don't believe that this is really true. Okay. So that all happens. Then the rapist is arrested and admits, admits, pleads guilty and admits to raping this girl at least two times. Okay. So now, clearly, they were wrong. They have to eat crow. This was a true story. This horror is real. And by the way, this is not the only time this happens in America. This is the logical extension of the world that you are creating right now post-Roe. So rather than saying, oh, we were wrong and this is terrible and maybe we should rethink our policies, which is what they should really do, instead, they're going in the direction of, uh, number one, the attorney general of Indiana is saying that they, they want to look at criminalizing the doctor who actually provided this girl with care because she maybe didn't file the proper government form or some bullshit like this. Goes on Fox News, says he wants to criminalize the doctor. That's where his outrage is. And then I just saw a national right to life official is making the argument that actually the 10-year-old should have had the baby. The 10-year-old should have had the baby. When I hear a story like this, I feel like there, there is no common ground, reasonable middle path with people like this who were willing to, number one, lie about the story, number two, after it being proven that they were wrong about what they were saying, refusing to correct the record, and refusing to state the obvious. The most obvious thing in the world is, really, a 10-year-old, and we're having a conversation. Just the fact that she's 10 years old means, by definition, a birth would be life-threatening, because she's only 10 years old. You know, skinny, frail, slight, like, you can't, that's a lot to put on, a lot of stress to put on the body of a 10-year-old. How about the life of a 10-year-old? Right. To be forced into childbirth and mothering so, your rapist baby at 10 years old. So you're telling me that 
this is the place now that the so-called pro-life movement has has gone to where they can't even look at this and say, hey, even though I might be generally pro-life, obviously we're reasonable here. And if there's a rape or if the life of the mother is in danger, by the way, check, check. Two of the three things that everybody always talks about is the guaranteed exceptions, right? Rape, life of the mother would be in danger. They're still against it. They're still against it. Yeah, and um, several Republican officials have been pressed on this specific case because it's like, okay, here's the end real world results of what you're pushing. Are you going to rethink this? Are you going to change Christy Noem, who is governor of South Dakota? She was pressed on this. She wouldn't say whether, you know, what they would do in South Dakota, whether that would account for this type of situation. She wouldn't say. Um, same thing in Indiana. The elected officials there also won't say. And as I mentioned before, right now she was able to go to Indiana and get that care. But Indiana is calling a special session, very dominated by Republicans, in order to implement their own draconian abortion ban. So they want to make sure that that little girl would not be able to get the care she needs in their state either. That's basically their reaction to this. Yeah, I, I just think the response from the right has been flat out insane. Like there's nothing redeemable about their position, you know, nothing. Yeah, there's no are they're just throwing all logic, reason, morality, ethics out the window. It makes no sense whatsoever. Look, there is a reasonable spectrum where you can debate what your position is on abortion. Like, I think there are smart people who can come to slightly different conclusions. Mm -hmm. But if you look at this case and you say, no, force her to have the baby and criminalize the doctor, you're a fucking psychopath. You are an absolute psychopath. I, I mean, I don't, there's not much else to say about it. I mean, it's just, it's obviously... Egregious. This is as fringe a position as you could possibly get. Right, and you're saying but, all conservative media was out there. Uh, I don't want to say all, but a significant portion, including the su supposedly respectable people at the National Review. Yeah, this was very respectable. Yeah, this is very widespread. It wasn't just Tucker out there on a limb by himself. This was very widespread, sort of coordinated effort to say, ah, we don't really believe that this is happening. And by the way, I looked into the numbers um, because the other thing that they'll say is, oh, this is this is very rare. And I mean, it is true, but if you <laughs> that this is not a you know regular occurrence in every town every day of the of um, the year. But in Ohio, there were roughly 60 abortions of girls under the age of uh, 15. So this is not yeah. like it never happens. And yeah. And, and by the way, if you are that little girl, if you are her family, you know, this is an absolute crime and a tragedy that's being um, brought upon her. Roe was just overturned. And now we're just hearing about th this case now. Mm hmm. It, it didn't take long for a case like this to pop up. Not at all. You know, these are things that nobody ever really reported on or thought about previously because the it, it would have been taken care of. I mean, to the extent, I mean, obviously the rape is something that's horrendous and terrible and you can't take care of that. You can't rewind the clock back. But in terms of the abortion in response to it, that would have just been taken care of and it probably wouldn't have even made national news. Oh, definitely so, not. Yeah. Right. So this is something that, you know, it probably is a semi-regular occurrence. You have a country with 330 million people or however many people are here. It's like shit like this is going to happen. And their position is going to be, have the rapist baby. And by the way, have your life threatened because you're 10 years old and you're trying to give birth. I mean, that is absolute psycho stuff. It is as psycho as you can possibly get. And by the way, final point on this, and then we'll move on to the interview. But th they drench this in, um, you know, a r religious ideology. The Bible isn't even, uh, isn't even so-called pro-life. There's a passage in the Bible about if your wife cheats on you, she's supposed to drink bitter water and the bitter water will make her miscarry. And if she does miscarry, AKA have an abortion, it's because the baby was the man who she cheated on you with's baby. That's in the Bible. So they prescribe abortion for a cheating wife. This fantasy that, you know, oh, you know, the Bible's anti-abortion is utterly made up. Yeah. And by the way, even if it was, God's also pro-genocide in the Bible in many parts. Does that mean we should all go run around doing genocides? It's just stupid. Every aspect of it is dumb. This is a problem that should have, there should have been a quick, simple, rational response to it. And now we're, we're debating things that we thought were settled for so long. It's just like, just like the whole thing about gay marriage too. Like now Thomas saying, oh, we got to take a look at Obergefell again. All these things that reasonable people have said, well, that's settled. There's a bunch of fucking morons who are saying, no, it ain't, bitch. I disagree. I disagree on something that I, it's insane for me to disagree on. But yes, I disagree on that. 
this is where we are now. Yeah. I, just to, to give you a really clear view of the quote-unquote pro-life position here, this is this uh, National Right to Life leader, Jim Bob. He's an Indiana lawyer. He authored model legislation in advance of the overturning of Roe versus Wade. This is a very influential person. The legislation that is being that is going on across the country, this guy had a hand in that. And he says that uh, we don't think, as heart-wrenching as those circumstances are, we don't think we should devalue the life of the baby because of the sins of the father. In other words, the 10-year-old should have been forced to have the baby. Yeah, and by the way, it wasn't even a fucking baby at six weeks, bitch. It's not a baby at six weeks. It's like that thing that happened with Charlie Kirk where he brought on somebody who was on the left and pro-abortion to debate him, and the guy holds up a card. It shows a picture, uh, and he goes, uh, you're telling me that this is a baby, and Charlie Kirk says, with every fiber of my being, I believe that's a baby. He goes, this is a dolphin embryo, you fucking idiot. <laughs> that's what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Six weeks? Six fucking weeks? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Six weeks and three days. People are gross. Anyway, let's get to the interview. All right. Um, with no further ado, we have lots of things to discuss with Zach and Gavin of The Vanguard, so let's get right to it. We are very pleased to be joined by the gentlemen of The Vanguard. That would be Zach and Gavin. Great to see you guys. Um, and Gavin, let me actually start with uh, you. We, we've got one of you up on the screen at a time, so we'll we'll ask direct questions to each one of you. Sounds but, good. Um, just give people a sense of like how you see your channel and what sort of like your core mission is of what you guys are up to. Yeah, that's a great question. And thank you so much for having us today on Crystal Kyle Friends. Really, really excited to be here and yeah, talk with you all. It's our pleasure. Yeah. So uh, Zach and I's mission at the Vanguard is, you know, basically that of every other lefty channel on YouTube, I would say, really just to share our thoughts, comment on the news and share the left perspective, particularly. Now, what does make us a little bit different is I think that, you know, we like to have a bit more fun with the commentary. We like to bring in some elements of drama and, you know, Twitter beef, um, arguments, debates, stuff like that, just some flavor and spice to, you know, bring people into what otherwise is a pretty depressing genre of um, YouTube, especially <laughs> these days. Um, so I find that it helps as far as just, you know, making it easier, making it funner, uh, making, you know, the content a little more clickable. Um, so, you know, that's kind of why we line, uh, lean into some of the more dramatic stuff. Again, Twitter beefs, debates, the sort. Um, but at the core of the show, you know, we do like to revolve it around real substance. And, and we like to say that, you know, sometimes the headlines are a little bit clickbaity, but if you click on it and you're watching our show, then you're going to uh, get a really substantive conversation that usually ends up uh, revolving mostly around policy. So do you guys, I'll ask uh, Zach this, do you guys um, struggle with trying to balance like solidarity with other leftists versus, um, you know, call outs for people being wrong about stuff? Because I found that, you know, I value both those things. I value solidarity. So I always want to extend solidarity to, you know, people who are ideologically in the same camp. But on the other hand, if somebody gets something wrong, I also feel the urge to be like, well, if I'm being honest and open and principled, I, I say like, you're wrong about this, even though you're somebody who I might align with on most issues. Do you guys struggle trying to balance those things? Because I feel like for your channel in particular, it's a tough line to walk because you almost exclusively talk about, you know, other left wing shows. Yeah. So just to piggyback on a little bit of what Gavin was saying, I think the other, uh, you know, I don't know what you would call it, peg of our show, other our other, you know, foundational block would be that we kind of view ourselves as a um, you know, uh kind of like, you know, new media applied this model to uh, legacy media cable news where they were uh, you know, critical uh, of the show, not out of any kind of vindictive nature or out of any kind of malice, but because they were looking for more consistency, right? They were looking for what's the through line here? Uh, you know, how could this be improved? What are, uh, you know, the mechanisms of power prohibiting these people from saying or pushing them to say all of those kinds of things? And, you know, I think that from Gavin and I's perspective, we try and keep that rule of thumb when we're deciding how do we call somebody out? How do we disagree with them? Uh, if I think that you're being inconsistent, uh, with your own morals or with what you've espoused in the past, that's when I've decided like it's for me to hammer on somebody, right? Uh, and you know sometimes that is unproductive. And gosh, we've learned some hard lessons like about that in the past. And you know we've always tried to be better and be consistent and make sure that when it comes to anything policy related, uh, that we don't let any kind of bickering disagreements get in the way of of intense solidarity. For example, right? There was a lot of division surrounding force the vote, and you know Gavin and I have. Uh, you know, whatever our opinion is of Jimmy Dore, but I, I didn't think that, you know, your personal opinion of Jimmy should get in the way of like a policy or a, uh, you know, movement that was, uh, you know, we, we thought was all agreed upon. So, 
uh, things like that we try and use as our anchor, right? So is this, uh, you know, something that, you know, is going to improve their commentary via artists, our um, kind of criticism? And that's why we do mostly talk about lefties, right? Like, I, I kind of think it's boring and a waste of time to go dunk on, you know, Steven Crowder or Tucker Carlson, just because I think that they're patently idiots. It's not intellectually stimulating to me or Gavin, right, to go out there and try and make fun of these people. Uh, but people who I do think are good faith actors who sometimes get caught up in things that I might disagree with or see the world in a different way, uh, you know, we try and come in and, you know, provide the Midwestern, you know, regular lefty kind of point of view. Yeah. I mean, Gavin, I'm curious, as, I actually don't know, when did the um, channel start? And I wonder, too, if you think that the sort of post-Bernie fracturing of the left has, in a sense, created the opportunity for your channel to grow and, and um, succeed. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely possible. Our channel started about two years ago, right around the time, you're right, that you know Bernie was dropping out. I think we might have started the channel a little bit before then, but our first ever interview on the Vanguard was actually of Green Party candidates Howie Hawkins and Angela Walker, right when they became the Green Party candidate. So we were kind of looking for an alternative. Obviously, you know, we weren't very enthusiastic about Joe Biden. And of course, we weren't going to vote for Donald Trump. So we wanted to help out with the, you know, third party movement and getting some oxygen into that movement, hopefully. Um, as far as the lefty infighting and stuff like that goes, you know, I think it's important to have a healthy and um, vibrant and even sometimes aggressive debate on the left, uh, or really wherever you are in politics, I think that um, an intense debate is is usually more productive than not. And, you know, for sure, there's definitely a line. Sometimes people do go too far, as Zach said. You know, sometimes we've gone too far and felt bad about it. Um, but overall, I think that, you know, as I said, a healthy, um, aggressive debate can be a good thing. I don't think it's something that the left needs to shy away from necessarily, especially because there's kind of this notion out there uh, coming from the right wing that us lefties are all weak and feeble and, you know, we don't stand up for ourselves or our ideas. Like, no, we're going to have a debate. We're going to, you know, aggressively, um, you know, push back on the bullshit and we're going to hash it out. So uh, I, I have a couple questions here. First, I'll ask Zach and then Gavin, uh, you can hop in as well uh, when he's done answering. But so for me, when I first started uh, doing my show, I know that um, some of my early inspirations were old school Bill Maher. Now, you know, in retrospect, you look back and you're like, eh, even when I liked him, he was kind of cringe in many respects, you know, but <laughs> when I'm young and dumb and I see this confident guy who's like, I think, spitting facts on on political stuff, that was very appealing to me. Um, old school Jank Uger, circa like 2008, you know, that he was he was an inspiration to me in many respects. Old school Tom Hartman, he was on Air America Radio. Remember that? When that yeah. Was like the, well, Tom Crystal Hartman's still that. wonderful. Well, he's still great. Yeah. yeah. But back then, it was like there was Air America was like left wing talk radio. And this is at the time when like, you know, Rush Limbaugh was peaking and talk radio was a big thing. And Air America was supposed to be like the left version of that. And mm -hmm. Tom Hartman, I thought, was the most intellectual and best talker of a lot of the guys who were there. So he was another big inspiration to me. So my question for you, and again, I'll start with Zach. Um, tell me which shows or, or which uh, commentators or pundits were your inspiration in getting into it? Yeah, well, there's no way to say this without sounding up like a huge dick sucker, Kyle, but I'll be 100% honest with you and tell you that I think there is no vanguard without secular talk, right? I mean, <laughs> I think that you were a huge trailblazer in our lane. And I'll be 100% honest that I, I've relied on you. And, and if you look at you know, the earlier elements of our show, I used to constantly bemoan the fact that you were able to monologue for so long. And I was like, Jesus Christ, it's so hard to talk for so long just by yourself. And that's why Gavin and I have each other. We, like, it is a, it's a gift, dude. So uh, I have to say- Percocet, uh, honestly, try Percocet, then, it helps. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I'll put the Adderalls down. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, and honestly, I'll be honest, if I'm, you know, cards on my sleeve, when I was like an 18 year old late night pizza delivery driver, every single night I was listening to Rogan for hours, right? Like, I think almost, like it's undeniable if you grew up in the like kind of area that I did with the kind of friends that I did, like everybody was just listening to those like really early Rogan episodes where he was like having paleontologists on to like debunk like our dinosaurs real like talking about Gobekli Tepe all this kind of stuff uh that was you know dominated the like more stoner elements of, of the early Rogan show so Rogan I have to you know be honest and say was a really big uh you know influence on me and then you know the other thing is I think that um if, if I'm being entirely honest one of the things I've always tried to you know um, transfer from my life into my commentary. And this is going to sound, I guess, really weird to people, but I've always liked the kind of like rhythmic kind of like, you know, prose driven kind of like rants and raves 
uh, that you can kind of get from hip hop music that's like really lyrical and, and stuff like that. And I've always tried to keep like a cadence when I'm going on the mic. So I guess those would be my like three biggest influence for, you know, the show and how I try and keep it lively and that kind of thing. Well, hmm. Thank you for the compliment. I, I do appreciate that. Uh, no matter how long I've been in the game, it always feels nice to get a little bit of positive reinforcement. Um, Gavin, what do you think? Yeah, so I would say I have a pretty similar answer to Zach. Obviously, I watched a ton of Left YouTube in the Bernie era. So guys like um, Jane Uger, of course, and Anna Kasparian on TYT, obviously Jimmy Dore, and then you, Kyle. I feel like that was kind of the big three, Secular Talk, Jimmy Dore, and TYT. And and obviously, we all know you know what's happened to that. Everyone's you know hates each other now. Um, but yeah, uh, between um, Jimmy's intense style of delivery and aggressive calling out of uh, people he disagreed with and um, your more thoughtful, sometimes commentary and, and, you know, Jank and Anna on TYT, I would say those are probably my big foundational influences. Not that I'm as good of a commentator as any three of you guys, but, um, I, I mean, I definitely watched a lot of TYT, Secular Talk, Jimmy Dore back in that time period before we started the Vanguard, in addition, of course, to the Humanist Report and, you know, all the other, uh, lefty podcasts. But, um, I don't know if I really have a specific inspiration. Um, I never saw myself as a commentator straight up, uh, never once saw myself doing any public speaking of any sort. I've always been terrified of acting and public speaking and uh, any sort of like public performance. It's, it's always been something that I uh, have shied away from just because I am naturally more of an introverted kind of person. Um, so when we started this podcast, you know, it was during the pandemic. Um, like I said, we did that interview with the Green Party candidates, um, but I never in a million years expected to be a commentator, let alone one that actually anyone listens to. Um, so I, I don't really know how I got here. You know, I've just been talking shit and, and talking, saying my mind, um, and somehow it's gotten us to this point. And Kevin, how, how long have you guys known each other and what was like the original goal for the show and the podcast? Well, Zach and I have actually known each other since elementary school, uh, since the fifth grade. Yeah. And that was, uh, 2008 actually when Obama was, um, against uh, running against John McCain, of course, for president. And, you know, there was a lot of debate going on at the time, of course, growing up in Kansas. Um, there was a lot of evangelical Christianity surrounding us. Um, we grew up in the suburbs of Kansas City. So, you know, again, very religious area, for the most part, very Republican area. And, um, Zach and I would debate exactly that. You know, uh, my parents were more lefty, so I, you know, was a big Obama guy as a fifth grader, and, and Zach's parents were <laughs> a little bit more um, Republican, so he would, you know, talk about how John McCain was the better candidate, and we would just literally debate in the lunchroom, and, you know, whenever we saw each other, good friends, talking about politics, uh, probably the only people in the fifth grade that, you know, gave a single shit about that. Um, so, so that's, <laughs> that's where adorable. it started. Yeah, it is, it is a crazy origin story. Um, and then as far as, you know, the purpose with the Vanguard, like I said, we were, we were just kind of bored during lockdown. We had this blog that no one read called the Vanguard blog. Um, and, and like I said, it all really just started when we reached out to the Green Party candidates and say, hey, would you be interested in doing an interview? Never expecting it to turn into a full time YouTube channel. Things just kind of snowballed from there. Hmm. I respect the blog thing a lot because, you know, when I first started doing my show, you could ask Corin because he would do it with me sometimes we would do a show and there would maybe literally be five or six people listening and we just kept going. Wow. We don't give a fuck. We'll just keep doing it. We'll do, you know, one year in two years in, and it's like, we're still just talking to ourselves. And we would also, I would get a four loco, which uh, I don't know if you guys know about that, but it's like banned now because it was so, <laughs> it was so strong. Yeah. So I'd have a four loco and corn would be drinking something and we would just, you know, talk for hours. And then, you know, it, it took a long time for it to catch on, but then eventually it caught on. So it's like build it and they will come is the idea. It's a little harder now because of all, you know, the way the algorithm works on YouTube and they make it a lot tougher for new shows to break out. But, yeah. you know, well, that's, that dedication yeah. is important. And honestly, the algorithm thing is part of the reason why we did lean into some of the, you know, kind of content we do, some of the titles that we run with. Um, I mean, that is one way to succeed in the algorithm. And also speaking of four locos, they did take out the caffeine, but you can still buy them just without caffeine. Yeah, that's yeah, what's the point though, right? <laughs> Thank no you for fun. that update. I want double the caffeine. I got I went down that nasty road. <laughs> um, Zach, I do want to know more about uh, what Gavin was just saying about the algorithm and sort of the, like the view of what it's like to start a channel brand new from scratch right now, because, you know, I feel like with Rising, we kind of like snuck under the the radar. We had this like corporate umbrella. And so we we're able to be on the corporate algorithm and build a show and build a base of support that then we could take independent. But, you know, I don't 
I don't think we could have really um, found that kind of success if we had just been starting out independently because the system is so rigged against you at this point. So what has that been like? What are you guys' view of that? Yeah, well, I mean, I wouldn't take too much away from yourself. I mean, Rising's a great show, and I think people would have found it regardless of whether or not you guys were under that corporate umbrella or not. But yeah, I mean, it, it definitely impacted the way that we framed our entire show, the way that we were able to grow. Uh, you know, when Gavin and I first started, as he mentioned, we started with the Green Party candidates interview, but it was about six or seven months of just straight interviews. Like, we would just interview people and, uh, you know, with uh, Cory Bush, uh, you know, all kinds of people. We had Tom Frank on, you know, we would just interview and interview and interview and interview and interview. Uh, and that was like the whole premise of our show uh, until we started, uh, we reacted to that People's Party convention uh, mm. from a couple years ago. And then our, we went, we were like high-fiving each other if we got like 150 views on a video. And then yeah. for whatever reason, we got like a thousand or something on that video. And we thought it was insane. We were like, oh my God, we're YouTubers now kind of <laughs> shit. And we were freaking out and like, we wouldn't stop talking to each other about it. And so we just kind of picked it up that way where it was like, okay, if you try and promote serious content on YouTube one, like this is the YouTube game. I'll actually, you know, quote Bosch for a second. He, uh, he had a really good tangent the other day where he was talking about like, this is YouTube. Like people want like Ben Shapiro TikTok react. They don't want like some really dense kind of, uh, you know, thought-provoking content. And I think that's debatable to some extent, but they certainly don't want that kind of shit from us, right? They want relatable content uh, that's like wrapped in a, a political packaging. And, and that's what YouTube wants to promote as well, right? I mean, uh, people aren't turning to us because they want to like watch a PBS documentary. They're turning to us because they want to be entertained, but they also want to have a lively political discussion at the same time. And we try and make our headlines uh, reflect that. And yeah, I do think that that's about the only way that you can as an up and coming channel succeed on YouTube, uh, because even some really, really, really good commentators I know that are really determined to, you know, not debase themselves by, you know, kind of leaning into the stuff that we lean into. Uh, they just have such a fucking impossible time getting in there uh, that it's almost like, okay, well, you, you're, you're not, you know, playing into YouTube's algorithm at all, but your message is also not being heard by way more people. So, you know, obviously it's everybody's decision what, what they want to do, but that's kind of the way we've, you know, kind of calculated it. Crystal uh, had a great line about, about this where I correct, I'm going to paraphrase here and you tell me what the actual line was, but it was something like, with the titles and the thumbnails, give them candy, but then they click on it and secretly they're actually getting vegetables. Yeah, we yes. said Gavin I, says that all the time. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the that's that's the the you know the method. That's what you have to do in yeah. order to to be successful. Is like crazy headline, the, incredible thumb. Yeah, and it's like and now we're going to talk about marginal tax rates. Although, bitch. I mean, what do you think about that? <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, that's definitely the way we think about it. Yeah, the line was like, "We promise dessert and we deliver vegetables." Right. Um, yeah. and you know, I mean, you have to do that, right? Like people in our comments sometimes or our premium subscribers will be like, "Why do you guys use these clickbaity headlines?" And it's like. Because you clicked on it, right, bitch? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there you, want you go. Us to eat or scarf. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, it is funny because sometimes it really will surprise me what will pop. So, like, for example, you know, we've been doing these deep dives into like the airline industry and all of that stuff. That really surprised me that it it has been taking off. Or like, you know, I remember back in the rising days, I did like some deep dive with a very vanilla headline about um, housing and like the housing market and all these private equity companies, permanent capital, like buying up single family homes. And that went crazy too. So it's an unpredictable beast, the YouTube algorithm. Oh, yeah. You never know what, and and also you can read too much into it. Like you can think, you know, because a certain segment pops like, oh, the, the audience was really into this when really it's like, no, actually YouTube just served it up to way more people than they normally do for whatever reason. That's completely not replicable. That's so true. I, I love your uh, expression too. The one I use is you got to hide the pill in a piece of cake. So yeah. you, know, you got to feed <laughs> them a the piece of cake in order to get them to take the pill. Uh, basically the same kind of a thing. But yeah, I totally agree. And, and also what it kind of comes down to for Zach. But, well, first of all, on the, on the airlines thing, I think part of the reason why that popped off is because from what I saw, you guys were the first people to even talk about that. I didn't see any other channels or anything uh, cover that. And I thought you guys did a really good breakdown of it. So that might be why. Um, but as far as Zach and I, another another reason we kind of do the kind of content the way we do it is that you know we don't take ourselves terribly seriously and we don't pretend to be experts in anything. You know, I don't consider myself a foreign policy expert, for example. Uh, but what I do consider myself an expert in is online left media. I've been consuming it for, you know, damn near a decade now. Uh, <laughs> I, I know these channels and commentators and their views in and out. I know the discourse. I know the dialogue like the back of my hand. Uh, so that's something I genuinely feel comfortable talking about. And, and I think Zach 
too. I mean, he didn't watch as much like bread tube as I did during the burning, burning era, but he definitely has caught up and he definitely did watch a lot. So, you know, that's just something we feel really comfortable talking about, uh, feel comfortable expressing our opinions about. And then again, yeah, the conversation usually, usually does get very substantive, even if we kind of frame it around more scandalous or uh, sensational uh, headlines. Like the other day we were talking about a certain commentator who I won't name uh, threatening to file uh, uh. a lawsuit, uh, you know, to, to, to sue someone else for defamation. And, and obviously that was this very uh, sensational headline and all that. But the conversation was was really a substantive 20 minute long conversation about freedom of speech, about what qualifies as defamation and about, you know, what you should be allowed to say about other people's character as a commentator. I thought it was a really fascinating uh, discussion. Yeah, it's amazing how quickly people flip on that free speech position. Mm -hmm, the minute that they don't like something. But now yeah. you said something about me. I'm going to come to see you. That's yeah. not fair. The shit that everybody, everybody who's <laughs> even like a minor public figure, the shit we've all been called is like, it's endless. You can't like. You oh yeah, you guys are gonna yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you guys are gonna hear about having us on your show in the comment section. Oh. We won't know because we yeah, won't look. We take the ignorance is bliss approach. Right. <laughs> you just don't read and it. It turns out it's that's like true. it doesn't even exist. Ignorance is indeed bliss. Yeah. Um, so, so let me ask you guys this. Um, at, in the post-Bernie era, because this is now the big question that everybody's coming up on because, you know, it's like, well, now's the time to start thinking about the future a little bit for the next election. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll throw a couple names out there and you tell me what you think of them so we got marianne williamson uh raphael warnock let's throw bernie in there again for shits and giggles uh john fetterman uh jesse ventura uh, i'll start with zach zach what do you think uh where where are your hopes uh and can't leave pritzker in, out in 2024 pritzker oh, yeah, pritzker, pritzker. fat billionaire boy can't forget about the big boy might be based i'm not sure but they, they they push back a little bit and we're like hey he's not really based so anyway talk about all of them go ahead zach you start yeah yeah uh, well, you know, you're speaking to our heart with Jesse Ventura, right? We're a uh, you know, a friend of our show over here. Uh, I don't think that there's any chance that Jesse's going to run for uh, president uh, in 2024, though. So, uh, just you know, I, I hope he does. I hope he, but he he doesn't necessarily seem like that's his top ambition right now. Uh, so, uh, setting that aside, look, um, I, I I I hate myself for saying this, but about out of all the options that you laid out, I just think with name recognition and and everything like that, I think that. If we're gonna do another run, if we're gonna do it again, like I think Bernie has a lane just because of the unpopularity of Biden and the name recognition of Bernie. I don't necessarily say I want to go down that rabbit hole again, uh, but Jesus Christ, it does feel like this is this would have been the perfect time. Like if if this lane, I don't know, because uh, what's Biden pulling out now? Like thirty some odd percent approval mm -hmm. rating. Kamala's like Jesus Christ. I think she's under twenty, and some of the polls like twenty two percent. If we're being honest, like really bad abysmal approval ratings. Um, Marianne Williamson, I, I know we talked briefly about this with uh, Kyle. She's a super uh, lovely woman. I, I I don't know. I would much rather see her run the third party route just because I don't think that she has the name recognition necessarily to get behind or, or to really be a force in a, in a, in a primary. I, I don't I don't think she performed that great. Uh, you know, not not that I have like I'm not trying to criticize her. I'm just saying like, you know, uh, I, you compare her last run to this run. I don't know if she would necessarily make the like dramatic strides that you would need to in order to seriously challenge somebody that the Democratic Party is going to entirely coalesce around. Um, and I like a, a lot from John Fetterman. I think he has a lot of really good energy. Uh, if he was like a VP choice for Bernie Sanders, I think that could be a really strong ticket to run uh, in the Democratic Party establishment. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty open lane. Uh, I'm not like massively um, invested in any kind of candidate right now, uh, which I think is the bummer. And I think it's the real problem for the left there. The energy is so split and disparate and fractured that, you know, um, well, you know, I might have a lot of agreements with John Fetterman, right? I think on our foreign policy, we start to diverge and that would become a lot more apparent during a presidential run when I'm about mm -hmm. to start, you know, really beefing with him about the fact that he says shit like the United States stands with Israel and Israel is, you know, the brother nation of the United States and all that kind of shit. And, you know, then I would start to take issue with that. And now it's not just, oh, well, he's really good on domestic stuff. And, you know, I can get, you know, swallow my criticisms of that uh, over Dr. Oz, right? Um, so I don't know. I think it's, I think we're really kind of fucked all around. Um, and we need a new fresh face to emerge. Yeah, well, um, I mean, Gavin, the reality is that all, probably the only one of those people that Kyle just named who is realistically looking at running is Marianne. I mean, you know, Ro Khan has been making all these noises, but then they ask him directly, would you challenge Biden? Absolutely not. Pritzker, absolutely not. 
Fetterman, absolutely not. Gavin Newsom, who was running ads in Florida and whatever, absolutely not. And I think Biden, as long as he still has a heartbeat, is 100% running for 2024. And I also think he 100% needs a challenge. Um, honestly, Marianne has impressed the hell out of me, having interviewed her and seen her growth. Um, you know, I do think that she would be a more formidable force this time around because she also has been spending this time really immersing herself in left media and making more connections in the sort of outsider world. And personally, I think that what we really need is someone who is an outside of the establishment figure to uh, to come in and have any kind of a shot. Yeah, I mean, I'm just hoping, honestly, that there is a primary. I know that you don't think it's likely, and, and I think you're right that if they can, they will uh, try to run Biden's corpse in 2024. But you know, I just and part of me just doesn't see how that's going to be possible with him actually having to get out and campaign this time. Unlike last time where he had the excuse of COVID to stay in the basement. This time he'll actually have to be out on the trail. I just like, how is that going to be possible? I, I don't know. So, you know, maybe he will run, but I'm really, really hoping for a primary. I can't I just can't stand the thought of uh, sitting here and, and watching the Republicans have all the fun um, while we, you know, uh, have Joe Biden. Um, it, it's such a pathetic thought. And I'm an unabashed lover of horse race politics. I uh, absolutely love campaign season. And I'm, uh, you know, have no problem saying that a lot of people think it's embarrassing to get into like horse race politics, but I love it. It's part of the reason I got into politics. So yeah. I really hope there's a Democratic primary. Um, as far as the candidates, you know, I think Bernie was being genuine when he said that if Biden doesn't run, that he would consider it. Um, so, I, you know, I, I do think that it's possible that Biden's just not there, all all there when as far as his health goes, mental and physical. And then that does open up a, a primary in which Bernie could jump in. Although, of course, we're still going to have to contend with Kamala Harris, who they're going to try to coronate. Um, as for John Fetterman, I almost kind of see him like an LBJ figure where his domestic policy is on point, but his foreign policy is garbage. Mm -hmm. um, so I really, well, that's really a big problem too. For uh, it's one thing if you're in the Senate, your impact there is somewhat limited. But yeah. I mean, when you're president, that's the area where you have the most influence and the, the most, yeah, I mean, the most control. So that does become that does become a major issue. Um, I'm curious, uh, Gavin, sort of, uh, if you had no other choice between Joe and Kamala, who would you pick? <laughs> Gun to your head. No other choice. Uh, Who would you pick? Joe. Probably yeah, Joe. I would pick Joe. I would pick Joe. And I, and I didn't vote for Joe Biden, by the way. I voted for the uh, Green Party candidate, Howie Hawkins, in 2020 just because I couldn't bring myself to vote for the author of the crime bill. But yeah, as far as who's a better communicator, even as, you know, not all there as Joe Biden is, I still think he's better at connecting with working class voters than someone like Kamala Harris, who, for one, can't even, you know, make a coherent thought, but also just drips coastal elitism, frankly, um, who seemingly is not in touch with anyone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> She's not I even always... in touch with the coastal elites. <laughs> oh, no. Zach and I always react to clips of her on the show. And every single time, I just, I almost don't even know what to say anymore. I'm just like, I guess she can't do this. Like, I guess she's. Oh so, oh, so you guys are just sexist? Is that what this is? That's what this yeah, is all about. Yeah, we only hate women VPs. We, <laughs> yeah. did, we didn't have a single problem with. I Mike bet Benz you didn't like Hillary either, did you? <laughs> uh -huh. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Um, Based to I not mean, like Hillary. Zach, my position on the uh, Joe versus Kamala, because I've thought about this, because I've thought about like, what if Joe dies and then Kamala's president? That's going to be worse. And the reason I think it would be clearly worse is because. At least on foreign policy, even though Biden has done many bad things, he has rejected some of the most hawkish impulses of what he's they've tried to pull him into. I mean, I don't support um, how far they've gone in on Ukraine. I don't support how they are pushing for that war to you know go on forever rather than trying to push towards um, a negotiated settlement. But he did immediately say, we are not doing a no-fly zone. I mean, there were some clear lines that he drew that at least have kept us out of a nuclear war. And I feel like <laughs> nice with, I mean, that's my bar. We I, didn't get a nuclear but war. But seriously, with, with Kamala, I genuinely think, I mean, the generals would cow her into doing whatever they wanted her to do. And that's a terrifying situation. No way Kamala Harris gets out of Afghanistan as yeah. another example. Yeah, but, so Okay, okay. But it is also true that by Biden, what Biden is doing now to Afghanistan yeah, is but worse she, than yeah, the war. But she, would do, them. but she would do that too, right? I mean, it's not like she would be better in that she area. So. Left, she would have never left Afghanistan. 
I think you're right about that. But now when you look at the way it unfolded, there like Biden is literally starving that country to death. No, so on I that know. front, you could say it's a wash or if anything, she might even be accidentally a little better on that issue. Yeah, but I do agree with your overall point that it, see the, the argument for him is not based in policy at all. The argument for him is like, well, there is a some percentage chance that he could win a general election. Whereas any Republican they prop up to run against Kamala Harris would be Kamala Harris. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, I think, too, because there's absolutely no chance, no chance. They could get the entire Democratic Party to coalesce behind Kamala Harris. They could have her standing with, you know, every Clinton, George Bush and the Obamas, uh, you know, and be like, please, please elect this woman president. Decency fucking requires it or whatever the hell they're going <laughs> to say. Uh, and then she would still get absolutely starched by even a bullshit candidate like Ted Cruz if he ran for president, mm. I think. I mean, seriously, I think that even the worst that the Republican Party has to offer in terms of relevance could still uh, you know, beat Kamala Harris because they would still find some base and they would still be able to competently speak to people, right? We've done so many, we, we did a, we started doing a segment called Cringing with Kamala that Gavin mentioned, and we've done it so many fucking times that yeah, I feel great. bad every time I do it. I'm like, wow, this is so, this is such low hanging fruit. It's just it's like a layup. Yeah, how, how many times can we share the meme of the alphabet soup and be like, new Kamala speech just dropped, right? And it's just like, you know, uh, it's it's just like, you know, listening to her speak is just like dinner at Olive Garden, word salad and alphabet soup, right? Like, it yeah. is it is incredible. So, uh, Gavin, let me ask you this. What do you make? Because, you know, I threw Bernie in there for shits and giggles. But the fact of the matter is Bernie said, look, I'm not going to run if Biden runs. Now, the thing that alone really like grosses me out yeah. as if like, you know, Biden can suffice for Bernie. The fact that Bernie sort of I know. like admitting that that's so weird and I don't like that. But what do you make of that? Plus the fact that, uh, you know, he, he he did flame out the last time. I think he basically won in 2016 and they stole it from him. Mm -hmm. But I do think mm -hmm. in 2020, he basically flamed out. So uh, but it would be crazy. He couldn't though, do randomly, what needs to be done. I mean, that's, well, I know, but uh, it would yeah. be crazy, though, if it's some for whatever reason, the Democratic Party now is like, all right, you know what? It's your turn, Bernie. Imagine like this is actually mm. his time. That would be amazing. Anyway, uh, I digress. <laughs> My question was, what do you make of him flaming out? And also, what do you make of him saying, like, look, I'm not going to challenge Biden if Biden runs? Yeah, I really, truly don't understand why Bernie Sanders seems to view Joe Biden in a more like positive or sympathetic light than someone like Hillary Clinton or any of the other, you know, co corrupt ghouls of the uh, Democratic establishment, which he railed against in 2016 and 2020. But for some reason, Joe Biden always gets a pass. Um, and of course, that happened on the campaign trail constantly. Um, but it also is happening now that Biden's actually president and Bernie's not really doing much to push him left. And yeah, sure, he wrote the um, Build Back Better plan, which never got passed. But like, what has he actually done to pressure Joe Biden very, very little. And and that's frankly very disappointing to me because, you know, if you're going to talk about a political revolution as he did, it's like a revolution doesn't stop when a presidential campaign ends. A revolution is something that should keep going. If there's a real need for a revolution, then like, why are you just going to, you know, walk away with your tail tucked between your legs as soon as your uh, presidential campaign came to an end? That just seems ridiculous to me. And, and I thought the whole plan was to push Biden left once he was in office. It, it just seems like we haven't really seen much in that regard. So, uh, yeah, I have to say that, you know, as much as I love Bernie Sanders and as much as he got me into this movement in the first place, yeah, he absolutely flamed out at the end. Um, I don't think he really was expecting or know how to, knew how to deal with all of the candidates consolidating behind Joe Biden and endorsing him at the last minute before Super Tuesday. I think whatever they were planning on, that was not part of the calculus, which I don't know why it wasn't. Seemed kind of obvious in retrospect, but obviously, you know, um, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? So, yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. I think it's been pointed out a lot of times that Bernie's just a little bit too nice. That you know he had some uh, positive. Um, relationship with Joe Biden when they were in the Senate, that they were friends and would talk to each other. And that just prevented him from being able to, uh, to to kind of be as aggressive as he needed to be on the campaign trail. And, you know, obviously this point has been made a million times, but why why would he ever stop Zephyr Deachout from publishing that mm -hmm. article explaining Joe Biden's corruption? It's, it's obvious as day. You're the one that, you know, pointed out the corruption in our politics in the first place and, you know, talks about super PACs and talks about the billionaires all the time. But somehow this doesn't apply to Joe Biden, who then went on to beat you. It's just it's just honestly mind boggling. I don't understand it. Um, and and yeah, I mean, obviously, that does make it a lot less 
um, and it make it a lot less exciting, the prospect of Bernie Sanders running again, and, unless he was going up against someone like Hillary that he really just had it out for and didn't have any problems criticizing. Maybe he would he would be that way with Kamala Harris or perhaps Pete Buttigieg. Um, I don't know. But yeah, I, I don't I don't pretend to understand it. He does seem to have a singular contempt for Pete Buttigieg, which is, you know, respectable and highly yeah, or relatable. Maybe Mark Cuban gets it. Oh, my God. Oh, I think he's running. I think Cuban think, is running. Oh, think absolutely. So? I think he's going to run as a forward party independent, and they're going to make a big thing of it. Andrew Yang is going to, you know, nut on himself. And then, why would I say that? <laughs> why, why, would, why would those words come out of me? Because it's true, Kyle. <laughs> but, uh, no, I really think he's going to run. And here, here's the crazy thing. Uh, since we don't know who it's going to be for the Democrats and the Republicans, although I think most likely is Biden and Trump. I right. think that's the most likely scenario. Yeah. I think homeboy is probably going to get seven, eight percent, which yeah. is a lot, which is a lot for an independent. So yeah, I think, who do you think he takes from? Uh, that's a great question. I think um, honestly, I think he I think, takes more from the Democrats personally. I don't know. I think it'll be both. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be 50 50 exactly, but I do think it's going to be both. I think it's at least 70, 30 Democratic voters. They're, they love nothing more because their entire worldview is rationalized by. Uh, you know, if you educate people, then all of the exploits and benefits of capitalism are okay, right? So this is how the Silicon Valley brainwash works. I know you guys know this, right? Like, they just, they believe that, you know, we're going to be all saved by like the Elon Musks of the world. And like, mm -hmm. those people don't hate gay people. And those people like, are nominally polite when they speak, even though they're still okay with, you know, uh, Wall Street vacuuming up every single family home so that even in the middle of Kansas City, you can buy a, you have to buy a house for over half a million dollars, even though it's not worth it at all, uh, because they've completely destroyed the housing market in middle America, just like they have on the coasts and and all these sorts of things. But uh, that's going to actually hit the Republican voter base, like it or not. Right. And I just think that a guy like Donald Trump, even though it's a complete lie uh, to these, you know, poorer um, middle America voters who, you know, are still kind of under his web, under his allure. Uh, the things like those, um, you know, the fact that you can't buy a house for your family, uh, the fact that, you know, everything is so expensive now, they kind of have, they kind of understand that as a problem of like the democratic elites, right? Whereas democratic elites do not see that as a problem of the democratic elite. So I just feel like if Mark Cuban gets in there, that's actually a boon to Trump because all the people who are like Andrew Yang style Democrats uh, would just feel like, oh, this is the guy that represents me and Mark Cuban, this oligarch, yeah, uh, right? And then uh, Donald Trump is still going to hang on to his like dirt poor voter base where he's like, it's us versus them. You know, Mark Cuban is the them. Joe Biden is the them. To I, I think that's all fair. But I will say I do think that suburban Republicans would go to Cuban because there is it is true with the January 6th commission. Yeah. Whatever you want to say about that is fair. But politically, it is theater and it's fucking working. It is working. Yeah. So his Trump's numbers keeps keeps going lower and lower and lower. Every moderate is gone from Trump. There's some like, you know, respectability politics, Mitt Romney type, like wealthy Republicans gone from Trump. So those people will go somewhere. And I think they will go to Cuban. So maybe you're right at 70, 30, because I mean, 30% yeah. Republicans is still a lot of Republicans, you know? So, but I, I do think he'll take from both. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, uh, Democrats are so much more seduced by the like enlightened centrist, right, yeah. like this is the good billionaire type That's of Yang. bullshit. I That's mean that- Yang's politics right there. Yeah, that it is now. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, back in, back, remember when uh, Hillary was running and they did that whole thing of like, we have the real billionaires on our side. Remember how that was like a thing that they did? Like our like billionaires are good oh. and they're, they're actually billionaires and you're only a fake billionaire. That was a whole thing. Like, yeah, they're very easily, there are a lot of democratic suburban liberal types with Ukraine flags in the bio who are very much into the like enlightened centrist thing. So I could, I could see Cuban, um, knocking off a good chunk of them. I also think, I mean, there's so many just structural barriers, even to someone who's a billionaire like him mounting any kind of a significant third party run, True, that, that also Perot. makes it really difficult. I think they have made it more difficult. They post, have, there's no Perot. doubt they have, but yeah. Perot got like, it was like, I don't remember the exact number, between 13 and 19 percent. Well, he like was that. in position to, you know, do even run. better before he dropped out and went back in. Yeah, and that, all that, of... The second run, that's what you're talking about. The yeah. first run, he got between like 13 and 19 percent. He still got zero electoral college yeah, votes. Clinton won. What's that? But just marginally, uh, a lot of those voters would have gone to uh, George H.W. Bush, but they were all pissed because of his tax code, right? Uh, and right. So they, that's the only reason that Bill Clinton was able, even able to get into yep. office in 92. And yeah. then the Democrats pivoted to make their entire messaging that Bill Clinton messaging. Uh, and then 
you know, that's how they fucked the party, uh, essentially. Yes, that is all yeah. precisely correct. And by taking the corporate money. Yeah. Um, all right, Zach, I've got another would you rather question. If gun to your head, Trump or DeSantis, which is worse? I think uh, it's a, it's kind of like a two-headed coin, right? Uh, do Because we were talking about this the other day on a walk between me and Gavin, and, and he made the point that, like, you know, Ron DeSantis probably wouldn't, you know, uh, you know, like he he would probably respect the results of an election, right? Uh, he you know he would he would be into the pomp and the circumstance of uh, of uh, you know uh, the respectability and, and politics and you know America the Great and all that bullshit. Whereas, but he's also more competent. I think he's more cunning. Uh, he he would be more uh, able to get things done. One of the things that was really I guess a benefit of Trump's incompetence was the fact that you know he did a lot of bad things, but he could have done way more if he was smarter, right? Uh, I just, uh, you know, he because of his beef with John McCain, he was never able to repeal the Affordable Care Act, right? Uh, you know, obviously he passed the massive uh, tax uh, cut for the rich, uh, you know, and he did a bunch of things with his executive power, like he assassinated Qasem Soleimani and all these kinds of things. Uh, but he didn't have the competence to uh, pass any big pieces of legislation that I think would really, really fuck Americans long term. Uh, obviously, he had his like fake new NAFTA deal uh, that came out. But I, I don't think that. But I think if you get a guy like Ron DeSantis in charge, uh, who's going to really know how to work the mechanisms of power, uh, who's going to be really entrenched a little bit more with the Mitch McConnell Republican um, you know, establishment that they're just going to be able to move and grind and, and get more policy done. So I guess, especially because Donald Trump is so old and I think he's losing his mind a little bit. I, I gun to my head, I vote for Donald Trump over Ron DeSantis, but I think I would probably just, you know, ask them to shoot me instead. <laughs> I mean, Gavin, Kyle and I have been having this debate too, and I genuinely don't know where I fall on it because I am not convinced that Ron DeSantis would like respect the results of the election. I just think if he did a coup, it would be less January 6th and more George W. Bush in 2000, right? Mm -hmm. He'd do the type of like high-minded, highbrow with the Harvard lawyer type of coup that was actually successful in 2000 versus the like QAnon people with the face paint and the Confederate flags at the Capitol type of attempted coup that Trump tried to pull off. Yeah, I, I do definitely agree with that to an extent. Um, but if the same exact circumstances emerged as they did um, the last time around, I, I don't think he would cling on to power in the same way. I, I do think he would, you know, ultimately just um, respect and, you know, step down when he needed to. But I do see what you're saying. If it, if it ended up in the same kind of situation that we had in 2000, then that absolutely could happen. Um, so I, I totally agree with that. I, I, you know, I'm a little bit confused about Ron DeSantis. I think that um, he's in a lot of ways just your average normie Republican and that he just kind of got lucky with all of the COVID lockdown stuff happening to be there at the right place at the right time and happening to have the right strategy as far as, you know, keeping things open for the most part. Um, and obviously he really seized on that politically. It kind of became his whole thing for a while. Now, whether or not that'll still be terribly relevant come 2024, we'll see. Obviously, he'll try to make it as relevant as possible. Um, but to be completely honest, as far as his delivery, his persona and even his policy, he, he doesn't really strike me as all that different than your average Republican, other than the fact that he constantly is leaning into culture war issues like the don't say gay bill and the CRT stuff and, and all that kind of crap. Um, so that would personally just exhaust me. I hate, you know, hearing about it. I hate talking about it. I think it's a distraction. I think it's super lame. Um, so, you know, for that reason alone, I'd probably have to go with Trump. So, all right, now I have to, I have to Wait, my spiel on this. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Cause her, Crystal and I have been debating this behind the scenes for a while now. So, First of all, let's state the obvious. They're both horrendous. <laughs> they're both Obviously. like, they're both. But here's the thing that uh, I think a lot of people miss. They're, I, I think they'd be virtually identical on policy. I think it's a total wash on policy. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump is Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis is Donald Trump on policy. So then that leaves you with the more intangible stuff like character and, mm -hmm. you know, how they'd act in a situation like January 6th. Yeah. And when you look at that, I tend to agree with Gavin's point that, um, and your point that he would do more if he were to try a coup, which I don't put past him, it would be more George W. Bush style, mm -hmm. which is like, let's put this veneer of respectability over it mm -hmm. where we're like, oh, we're not doing that. Right. Whereas Trump got to the point where he was like, yeah, you rigged the election. I'm going to take it now. You know, so I do think that um, he would be slightly better than Trump. I like how Trump was Italian in that. Uh, you like that, right? Yeah, uh, he, he, would, he would be slightly better than Trump. Because at the end of the day, even if he were to try to take it, and even if it worked, there is a next election. 
Whereas with Trump, if he got his way, he'd be like, I'm appointing, I'm declaring martial law. I mean, he was this close to declaring yeah. martial law. Yeah. I mean, he, he threw Pence under the bus because Pence was like, uh, I'm not going to end whatever remnants of democracy we have left in this country for your fucking ego. Yeah. You know, so he's ultimately basically like hang him for it. <laughs> right. So ultimately, I think I think DeSantis edges Trump out in that respect, because even if he were to try to take it, there would still be a next election. You well, know your, I mean? your point has always been, which I think is a reasonable point. Then you at least you have like an illusion that you're able to hold on to that the country is still kind of in one piece. You know, right. Trump denies you the ability to have that illusion. And ultimately, what are nations, if not these sort of like shared illusions and fairy tales and intangibles? Um, on the other hand, like George W. Bush, because not because he was smart and competent, but because he had competent people around him, was actually able to effectuate the outcome of the coup versus Trump, who was unable to. So that gets to the question of like, you know, this is the point. I'm not even leaning into this point because I'm not sure I believe it. But this is what a lot of people are saying is basically like, yeah, DeSantis would be more competent in doing the bad things that Trump only aspired to do, but was too bumbling and undisciplined to actually pull off. Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, oh, I, I think, hold on, guys, one second. My yeah. earpiece thing came oh, off. There you go. You're good. All right, we're good now. Okay. <laughs> go ahead, Gavin. Oh yeah, I, I was just gonna say I, I largely agree with that. I think that Kyle's right that from a policy perspective, they're basically the same. Um, yeah. Again, I feel like Ron DeSantis might lean into the culture war stuff a little bit more. Like, I don't constantly hear Trump out here talking about stuff like the don't say gay bill, for example. In fact, I feel like one of the few positive things about Trump is that he was a little bit more friendly to the LGBT community. And no. now I remember mm. he, he banned he, trans like, people from the I military. Know, yeah, but that. you know, but here I here's where I think you have a point. Remember when he ran initially, he was like, I'm the most pro-gay president in history. Yeah. And he like had a, had a gay pride flag, something like that. Um, but the Republican base has shifted. And I, you guys have been covering this on your channel. We've been talking about it here. You guys had a fantastic exchange, I thought, with Glenn on these issues. Like the Republican Party is leaning much more into overturning, you know, gains that have been made by queer people. And so, you know, they started with this like, oh, trans people, we just care about the children. But as Kyle revealed in his interview with Jordan Peterson, no, it's just not the children they care about. I think the Don't Say Gay Bill and the way it's being implemented really shows the attacks on, um, you know, the entire LGBTQ community. You see Clarence Thomas out there saying, you know how you thought that you had gay marriage and that was settled? Like, I'm not down with that at all. So I think because of the way that the base has moved, I don't think you would see Trump today, you know, being seen with a gay pride flag the way right. that he was back in 2016. He's happy to use any of these issues. He doesn't stand for it. He's happy to use and weaponize and, you know, um, exploit any of these issues for his benefit. Yeah, I, I think that's totally fair. Although I do think that it's also fair to say that if he was actually elected, <clears throat> Ron DeSantis would want to take the country in a more theocratic direction. Whereas Donald Trump, let's be honest, he doesn't have a religious bone in his body. He doesn't give a shit about actual Christian values or actual you know, religion or Christianity. He only uses that to get the evangelical base. Whereas I think someone like DeSantis would get in there and he'd actually think, you know, this is my calling. I need to you know, make this into God's country. I need to enforce these edicts on people, whether it has to do with gay marriage or whatever else. I feel like similar to Mike Pence, that's a serious core of his being. Whereas Trump just uses the evangelical and panders to them, uh, DeSantis actually is one himself, if that makes any sense. I don't know. I don't really see DeSantis as having any particular principles either. I mean, this is a guy who's been a shapeshifter as well. He came in and he was all in on like Freedom Caucus and Obama's transforming the country. Like he leaned into a lot of the deficit hawk and sort of like traditional Reagan Republican rhetoric. And we got to go after, you know, the, the debt and the deficit when he was first in Congress. And then when the wind shifted, he became leaned into the Trump MAGA set of issues because he saw that that was the way to get ahead in terms of Republican politics. So I don't really see him as being an ideologue so much as just, really? you know, another, yeah, another sort of like political power player is happy to move what, whatever pieces he can on the chessboard to get I mean, what he wants. I, I think you're both right. It's a distinction without a difference because fundamentally they end up doing the same shit, whether they're just doing it for careerist reasons and shape-shifting reasons or if they're doing it because they're actually committed to it. They end up doing the right. same shit anyway, so it doesn't matter. But like, what about 
What about abortion? Like, I think that if right. Mike Pence was president or Ron DeSantis, they would actually pursue uh, a, a full-scale nationwide abortion ban. I don't Pence, necessarily think Trump would go down that road. Pence, I 100% agree with. Pence, I do think, is a true believer, ideologue, religious zealot. And But the difference between his response and DeSantis's response in the wake of Roe being overturned is actually quite notable. So Pence immediately comes out and says— now we need a national ban. This isn't enough. It won't be enough until, you know, this is the law of the land in every state from sea to shining sea. And um, DeSantis is under pressure from Republicans in his own state to go further to push a, you know, they have a 15-week abortion ban with basically no exceptions. They want to make it a six-week ban, if not more. And he has been very reluctant to move in that direction. Why? Because he knows the politics of it are terrible. And, you know, he's got his own election that he has to deal with. So I don't think that he is as much of a sort of like ideological religious zealot. He knows the politics on that issue are bad for him. And so he's trying to stay away from it. Nah, he'll give in eventually. He'll do it. eventually. <laughs> there, no, well, there's no doubt he's going to do it eventually because yeah. the base is so rabid and so loud and so obnoxious and they're all going to go down that same path. That's why I genuinely think it's a distinction without a difference. I think they're all going to be well, the- exactly the same. They're going to float that idea of a national abortion ban. Mm-hmm. They're not going to have the votes to get it through. But if they get the House, they might get it through the House. It might die in the Senate. The but- only places where it matters is where you have someone like Pence who might be willing to do something that is like in the religious zealot direction that is actually politically a negative for him. Where someone like DeSantis is just calculating, I, I don't agree. Is this a is this good for me politically or not? I don't agree because even Trump, he signed a bunch of pandering to the evangelical Christian right executive orders when he was president. Well, mm-hmm. I, so and I, and he's he I think doesn't believe any of it at all. Like I think he's the most you know. Yeah, but Trump has also not come out and called for a national ban. Yeah, but Pence he, is the only one who jumped ahead of okay. that and is like, this is my thing. If he was president and some evangelicals in the Tea Party caucus or whatever bring it up for a vote, is Trump going to be like, no, 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 we're not doing that? No, no fucking way. No, I agree. Yeah, but there are no going to way. be places where it would be in the political interest to not do the religious zealotry thing. And Pence would go there, even if it was not in his political interest. Yeah, I, I, I don't agree. True. I think they're all going to listen to the base and the base is like, this is what we fucking Zach want. Zach wants to agree with me. So let Zach. Well, you're both wrong. Then. Go ahead, Zach. <laughs> no, no. I, I, was, I was just going to jump in and say that I think that what I, I could very much see happening uh, is the fact that, uh, and, you know, one of the things that I think a, a lesson that could be learned uh, from Donald Trump in his uh, 2016 uh, Republican primary was that he only really needed like 35% of the Republican vote in order to just own the entire election. And in fact, he actually looked like his numbers were really low um, for, throughout much of the primary when it was really crowded. Uh, but it wasn't until, uh, you know, everybody started to trickle out that, you know, uh, that uh, Trump started to rise. And I think that that evangelical vote comes into, uh, or the pandering to the evangelicals is probably, you know, one of the most self-serving things that any Republican candidate could do, right? In the in the sense that Ron DeSantis looking out for his best interest and making the most like politically, you know, calculated decision, depending on where the culture war goes, I think, you know, getting that evangelical base plus, you know, 10% or whatever, uh, you know, at some point, let's say in a, in a scenario where Donald Trump doesn't run and DeSantis wants to make sure that he shores up, you know, his base plus the evangelical base to, you know, get enough of the primary vote in order to force the decision like Trump did. Well, it was like, are you going to vote for a Democrat? Or are you not going to vote? Or are you going to vote for me? Right. Um, you know, and, and so I think that's how the evangelical work plays, or the, excuse me, the evangelical vote plays as a pawn in the Republican Party, because the evangelicals, it doesn't seem like they give, uh, they, they care at all about whether or not the people actually believe what they're saying, right? They got behind Donald Trump. Um, so uh, it's not like they're principally like only going to get behind these like actually live, you know, Christian conservative guys. But uh, so if Ron DeSantis does come in and decide, you know, like, yeah, I, I will go ahead and overturn o- Obergefell or the case, uh, Supreme Court case over gay marriage, or if he does say, you know what, uh, it's in my political best interest to decide that I need these, you know, 10% or 15% of Republican voters who want a national uh, abortion ban. And if I can shore them up, plus my, you know, anti-LGBTQ commentary, plus my, you know, anti-CRT commentary, plus my look at how expensive gas prices. And remember, I didn't ever lock down the country commentary. If that gets him enough of the pie, then I, I agree that he would be willing to do all of those things. But he doesn't strike me as a guy that's interested in anything but his own political careerism, kind of like uh, Crystal said. Indeed. Like I said. Um, All right, guys, tell the people where they can find your channel, where to follow you, how to support you, all that stuff. 
Yeah, well, we are the Vanguard. Um, you can find us by typing in the Vanguard on YouTube. That'll bring us up. We are the first result, luckily. Um, but other than that, you know, there's not much to plug. Again, just uh, hit subscribe on that YouTube channel if you enjoy what you've heard uh, in this conversation. And obviously, we have a Twitter, too. All that stuff can be found in the description of our YouTube videos. But, yeah, we really appreciate you guys for having us on. We thought it was an awesome conversation. Could honestly shoot the shit for another couple hours, really just enjoying the talk. But, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Our pleasure, yeah, guys. Thanks. thanks so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. All right, guys, that was Zach and Gavin of the Vanguard. Um, I don't know if I'd consider them the wave behind me or the wave behind that. I think probably the latter. Dose waves back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that can, that's probably true. Yeah, because, I mean, they came on the scene even after the second Bernie Sanders. You mm -hmm. know, they're at the tail end of that. So they are they're newbies. And I do think it's really impressive. It is really hard to get a channel off the ground now. I mean, it is next to impossible. Oh, yeah. And, no about it. you know, they really have come in and made themselves sort of relevant and grown their channel um, comparatively quickly, given how difficult the landscape is. You're reminding me of how old I am in this space right now because, uh, <laughs> you know, mentioning how recent they've come on the scene. Yeah. I'm thinking I, I did uh, for, uh, you know, going on vacation for the throwback videos i yeah. was do i was covering clips that were literally from like oh some from oh four yeah they were like in elementary school bill o'reilly when he was like when i was in fifth grade and we were debating obama mccain yeah. i was like oh my god that was the first time i could vote was the first obama election you know um yeah so i did bill o'reilly and cameron when they debated each other. See, and, I don't I don't remember see, that. See, you don't even, even remember that. That shows how much I'm dating myself because I'm talking about it like, yeah, some of you guys may have seen this. Yeah, but like, the difference nah, is... I know what none of them saw you, you were always into politics, you know? Mm. I came into politics later. Like, I wasn't really activated in politics until right. around the Obama era. I mean, I was very much galvanized by the opposition to the Bush war in Iraq. Like, that was my first sort of formative political mm -hmm, experience, mm -hmm. but I wasn't really all the way in until 2008, 2009. Yeah, well then you so probably... So 2003 clips, I, I wasn't paying attention. Some definitely. of the throwbacks you would probably notice then, like when Chris Wallace and Jon Stewart debating on Fox News. Do you not know that? Don't remember that. Wow. Don't know I that. I really am dating myself. And the other thing is, it took me a long time before. I really didn't watch cable news until like 2010. Like basically, when I started doing you know, say, when did you get when I started cable doing news? cable news is when I started watching cable news. I didn't know who any of these people were. I never watched that trash. <laughs> so yeah, you know. So yeah, I I really didn't have any exposure to that type of any of the things that would go viral back in that era. Hmm. How did things even go viral back then? There was no Twitter back um, in two thousand. Well, YouTube came around in 06. Uh huh. So anything post 06 had the potential to go viral on YouTube. When and did Twitter? Twitter Oh nine ish, I want to say. Wasn't Obama and Twitter and oh hey? So maybe it's young, maybe it's even older than oh nine. Maybe it is. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. It was it, his you know. big thing was his like Facebook knockoff thing. Remember, it was called My Bow that people would use. To, they had their I own. I definitely you don't, remember, don't this? remember that shit. Yeah, no. this was a big. This is the big like innovation at the time was they built their own internal campaign social media software for all of the like volunteers and organizers across the cu country and it, it was like facebook but it was called my bow like my barack obama my bow yeah let me make sure i'm not making that up but nuke, it. <laughs> nuke that night, please <laughs> yeah yeah that was like the big the big thing i mean he was the first candidate that really was able to um uh raise significant amounts of grassroots Dollars, True. you know, that yeah. was like a real, a new, while also a raising new thing. Wall Street money, while also <laughs> raising lots of, and then it turns out that was the only part that he really cared about. Right. Yeah, my exactly. bow, Obama website. Obama. There All you right. go. Well, now I'm sick to my stomach. All right, guys, <laughs> uh, we love you. Everybody, go to Substack, sign up, five dollars a month, get you the video of the shows a day early. Everybody else, if you want, you can sign up for free and get the audio podcast for free as soon as it drops a day later on Saturday. We love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.